1: All right, welcome back to the Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. We're recording on Thursday, August 12th, 2021, and I'm here with Sharifa Williams, who is not Rebecca Shinsky, uh, <laughs> subbing in while Rebecca is out. Sharifa, boy, you, you're the our executive editor for Book Riot, and then you do science fiction and fantasy podcast with Jen Northington. Yeah. Um, SFF, yeah, which is a science fiction fantasy show and it's interesting that you're here today because we're going to do a little adaptation follow-up talk which is very sf yeah, yeah. <laughs> <Focused on> these <laughs> days with stuff coming out i can never. i always read the title of your show and i don't say it that much um but yeah uh, thanks for, uh, SFF, joining
0: yeah yeah thank you i'm happy to be here and to talk about some some of my favorite things which are movies and tv and books so
1: right um so let's do a sponsor break and i'm gonna i've got some listener feedback about adapted series but i do want to hear your takes about if you've got them uh hot and ready uh in your holster about dune and foundation some other stuff coming out here pretty quick but uh first uh, a quick sponsor Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA member FDIC. So last week, Sharifa, Rebecca and I were, I kind of pounced on Rebecca unawares about how with Dune and Foundation coming out this fall, there isn't to me another obvious sort of giant sequoia science fiction fantasy property out there left to be adapted. We talked about some that we'd like to see adapted, some that might be coming, like the N.K. Jemisons and some other things yeah. like that. But in terms of like canonical, most people even in pop culture have heard of them, we're sort of out. And based on listener feedback, I think that estimation is correct. There's there's one property that I'd be more excited than others, but it doesn't rise to those levels of you, uh, of 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 most of us knowing about them. How are you feeling about where we are in the science fiction and fantasy adaptation world? Are you excited for Dune? Are you excited, Foundation? Are you interested in Amazon's, I think, $1 billion trillion, whatever, <laughs> Atlantis, Middle Earth, Second Age series coming on the fall? Like, yeah. where are you as a science fiction, fantasy, pop culture person on where we are in the adaptation, like sort of this late high age of science fiction fantasy cycle?
0: I feel like there are so many science fiction and fantasy adaptations coming out that I like my head is spinning a little and I can never I feel like I could never keep up with it. Um, In terms of like Dune and Foundation, I tried to read Foundation and like when I was a very early it was I think when I was embarking upon reading more science fiction because I started out as a very fantasy heavy reader um, since I was a kid. But when I started to get into science fiction, I I tried to read Foundation, and I did not enjoy the experience, to be (laughs) honest. I DNF'd it. Um, And so it's going to be interesting to me to see how they adapt it and whether that's going to pique my interest more than perhaps the book did or the series did. Uh, In terms of Dune, that's another behemoth I have not read, but I watched the earlier adaptation, And I thought it was cheesy, but I really enjoyed it as a young person (laughs) because I like cheesy and, you know, I I like B-movies, so that's a whole thing. Uh, But the Dune adaptation, I think, is really interesting. I think it's like it is one of those big canonical works that a lot of people have read and took it upon themselves as a challenge to read so I really want to watch it I am not a purist about reading books before I watch anything so I am definitely going to watch it and then decide whether I want to read the book for the first time for real Uh, but I think that there have been I think the Jemisin like the Broken Earth series that trilogy is definitely one I'm really excited to see adapted and that I would think of as like the most contemporary like it's a contemporary classic. It's it's going to right. be on list for a long time to come. And I also would be really interested in seeing maybe the Earth Sea Cycle uh, reimagined for Yeah, I
1: think that's one that we maybe mentioned that there's some Laguin out there that yeah. is interesting. Yeah. I, I I agree with that one uh, as well. Your running mate over there, Jen, we talked Jen jumped on the show what now seems like seventeen years ago, um, pre-pandemic, when we got the first <laughs> Dune trailer, yes. and she's a super Dune nerd, yes. and we were nerding out about it. It's been around a while, which I wonder if that lessens the interest in it, raises the interest in it. Give give me a couple picks though on like idiosyncratic sci-fi fantasy stuff that maybe no one has heard of, or at least in the pop culture sense that you would make would make good at. Like if you were out there acquiring for. Uh, Apple Plus Prime 2 or whatever, what, yeah. you, what would you go by if you were in charge of adapting some cool SFFES stuff?
0: I think I would definitely adapt when I read the Bone Witch series by Rin Chupeco. I really loved, I thought that it had a very cinematic quality to it. And I think it's interesting in in one of the articles, we're going to be talking about how that world building aspect was such a big part of, you know, what gets adapted. And I think in terms of world building, that was a good one. And especially with Shadow and Bone having come out recently and like the interest in YA fantasy with that, super epic feel i mean this one's sort of ya adult uh because it was shadow and bone and um six of crows but you know what i mean like there is definitely an interest in (laughs) in ya stuff uh and i thought the bone which was great and i would love to see more like dark fantasy uh become adapted um and that's I think a popular one so I don't even know if that's like under the radar ask but a lot of the stuff I like because I'm a terrible series reader I just (laughs) never finish series um are standalone things which I don't think work as well or are not as much of interest but I think like Becky Chambers uh series um, That's the Wayfarer series. Yeah, the Wayfarer, right? Wayfarer yeah, yeah. series, especially with everybody being so into a comfortable, sort of found family stuff. Yeah. And this is very much an ensemble cast series, and it's so flexible, like between the different books that can work as standalones. Uh, I think that that would be such a, a great and easy thing to adapt. So, those are two picks. One fantasy, one science fiction off the top of my head uh, that are not necessarily under the radar, I guess, but maybe the the wider world of readers have not uh, come across.
1: Oh, definitely. I think when we're comparing them to Dune or Foundation, certainly Lord of the Rings, those are the radar. And those these are much different in terms of awareness. Yeah. There. And I think you mentioned two things I, I think are really interesting. I think there is... I don't think there's any like totally open space in the science fiction and fantasy ad- adaptation realm. I do think going darker is interesting. And I think I haven't read The Bone, which, but my sense, and I think you just backed it up a little bit, is that it is darker. I don't know if it verges yeah. on horror or not, but I think there is, there might be an appetite out there for something that is a little more hair raising than spectacular, which Shadow and Bone more is, as a spectacle than creeping mm. you out, scare you. I think there might be a little bit there too. And then, I think Becky Ch- the Becky Chambers I-, I love that series and I think so it good. might be a good TV show series but I think the thing that a standalone or a series like that doesn't have that the dunes the foundations the shadow and bones have is if they hit it can be a theme park it can be a series of spin-off novels it can be the multiverse like you could the the goal here for all these properties especially if they're being acquired by multi-trillion dollar tech conglomerates is to make it into a Marvel cinematic universe. Like mm-hmm. that's the goal is like that. You could have a product that could be a star Wars. That could be a Harry Potter. That could be a, uh, what was the one I just said? A Marvel. And we haven't gotten that yet. Cause game of Thrones is going to try. Lord of the Rings is trying. Um, DC. I'm not sure we'd say that successful. They keep making stuff. And I, would you yeah. say that's a success on the whole, but the, but the, the, the brass ring here is, insert letter cinematic universe that you can have 50 years of content out of, right? I mean, I think that's what everyone's looking for on that space. Now, you and I, as sort of pop culture people, I would be thrilled to get a really good standalone adaptation of The Night Circus by Erin Morgenstern. But it's yeah. not its not going to be more than that. It's just, no. it, it, it isn't, um, unfortunately.
0: Well, see, this is interesting because it's where I, as a reader and viewer, kind of diverge from probably what... Uh, people who are in the business of adapting things uh, are looking for, because I love and much more prefer like limited series where I know there's going to be an ending that it's not just going to. And this is a problem with some of these like bigger sort of franchisey works is that they milk them and they milk them and they milk them. And sometimes because there is no real end in sight and the ending is not prioritized as the thing they care about um i i like that a limited series is not going to fizzle out in terms of an ending or just be right. canceled before i get a chance to have a satisfying conclusion and so i i agree that there are a lot of there are not a lot of works out there that are adaptable into this big you know marvel cinematic universe style situation um and there's a part of me that's glad for it maybe
1: yeah (laughs) no it's true and netflix has done an interesting thing i've seen them um i've read a little bit about their strategies they don't really they don't really want a series that's going to run for 20 years what they want is something that'll run for a little while and then they cancel it for a couple reasons one is you know this is going back to the old broadcast days where it wasn't the first two up seasons of friends that got expensive to make for mm. for warner it was when they were paying all those folks a billion dollars and all the yeah. everyone had a stake and they knew it was worth a lot so they could get a lot out of it so your 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 costs ramp up but what Netflix wants is new subscribers, and they want to keep people around. So they they want to turn over the properties, right? They're not going to look into make a new Shadow and Bone every year for the next 50 years. They want people to keep their subscription and bring new people in, which is, I'm not sure if you're a Stranger Things fan or not, but I, I kind of am. I've watched them all. What's interesting about that is there's no urgency in turning it over because they want to bring it back every couple years to bring people back into the fold who maybe let their Netflix you know subscription lapse or something mm-hmm. else like that they don't want to do 27 stranger things movies because what they want is new people coming in and they need new properties to get new people by definition because the people who already subscribe already like the properties they have so somehow they have to re- it's a very weird game as opposed to a movie theater right which they just want your money and or marvel where I just need you to like the next Marvel thing and pay for it. I don't care if you get the subscription or not. And that's a Disney. It's a completely different thing where it's basically, if you're a parent, it's like a tax on your life, uh, Disney Plus, because it's so valuable. But anyway, it's a different thing. So the various things make more sense. My brother was just texting me this morning. He's like, Are you you like the Watchmen series, right? I was like, yes. He's mm-hmm. like, I just plowed through it. And it's interesting because like, do you know if there's another season? And I said, I don't think so. Lindelof has said he doesn't want it, but... I would watch another season, but I'm kind of glad there isn't. I'm kind of like that. It was a, it's over now yeah. and we can, you know, take, take it on. I, I agree with you. And I, that's one of the reasons that I coined the phrase O'Neill's razor of, I typically don't read a book series until it's done because a, I know when it's done because I did this thing to myself with, um, actually was it, I think it was, um, the Rothfuss that I'm still waiting on. Oh, I gosh. didn't know it was a trilogy. I read the first one. <laughs> I thought it was standalone. It's like, Oh, there's another one. Where's the third book. That was 10 years ago, Sharifa so, I don't want That's to do that. Rough. Yeah. So anyway, I agree with you in that regards too. Um, let me get to, to a little feedback here. Some really great feedback. This was this really hit a nerve. Um, let me say this: the property that people mentioned a couple times, several times, that they were also mentioning is something they cared about, also that surprised Rebecca and I didn't think of it is the Saga series by Brian K. Vaughan and Fiona Staples, which I totally mm. agree with. If I would have thought of it, I would have mentioned it.
0: Wow, Again, yeah.
1: it's not up there with Dune. It's not up, it just isn't that kind of a property. But in terms of something that's super interesting, I think would be really fascinating as a sort of like stranger, bringing some of the Game of Thrones adult content into space and uh, in some <laughs> of the larger things that go on there. I think that'd be great. Vaughn and Stables have talked, I believe, if I remember correctly, about clearly being super reticent to do it for a lot of the reasons. I think they saw what happened to Game of Thrones and they're not done writing it, I don't think. And what do you, you know, you really lose control of it. But I think that would be my number one draft pick if I was acquiring to take a shot on. Um, Are you a saga person, Sharif? I don't think I know this.
0: I read the first volume of Saga, and I loved it, but it was one of those, again, terrible reader of anything that has lots of books or lots of comics because, you know, I just move from one thing to the next. But I do see, like, when you consider something like The Walking Dead, which is based off of a massive comic series, uh, Mm -hmm. then it makes sense that 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 would be... uh, adaptation friendly but yeah in terms of like the the greater franchisee world especially because it's not done and i don't actually know how many um how many issues are in the series i'm behind so. i think
1: because i would read them in like the volumes you know and i don't know how many yeah I maybe an annual Same. volume and i have the first one it's beautiful and then i read on um I guess it was on Libby or something or Comixology, I don't know. I, but on my iPad, I did the second volume, but I lost track of it. I, O'Neill's razor for comics is a disaster. It means you can't ever read a right. comic, essentially. You're right. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm kind of I've been looking for a way to get back into it, but I, I don't know that you and I are uh, aligned in that regard. Um, I want to spend a little time on this email that Chris wrote in and got. This person got really into it. So what they did is they went into Goodreads and looked at series and then looked at the ones that had the most reviews and then took the top 15 that haven't been adapted mm-hmm. to say here's, you know, just in terms of mind share, this is a pretty good proxy for what people know. I think that's a pretty fair, I mean, you could do a lot worse than trying to guess what a proxy for awareness is, right, Sharifa? Yeah. I can't even think of what else I would do than this.
0: No, I think that's very clever. I'm very curious.
1: All right, so I'll read through them and I'll, I'll kind of go slowly. And you stop me if you want to pause on one, and okay. then maybe at the end we'll kind of come back to it and think. So, and I'm, I'm I'm apologize. Some of these names are my first time ever saying them. The reader's curse. So here we go. Mm-hmm. Uh, Victoria Avillard's The Red Queen series, P.C. Cass House of Night series, Sylvia Day's Crossfire series. I should also these are all science fiction and fantasy, not anything else. Uh, Robin Hood's Robin Hood's The Far Seers, Ursula K. Le Guin's The Hainish Cycle, uh, Marie Lou's Legend, Sarah J. Maas' A Court of Thorn and Roses, which I think Rebecca and I mentioned as one that's got some juice in it. Yeah, Anne, Mc- Anne McCaffrey's The Dragon Riders of Pern. Mm. Um, do you know that series? Did you grow yeah up that
0: i know movie? of it i know a lot yeah. of people are obsessed with that series
1: yeah it's the it's the most that has the longest like shelf life because the first series the first book of that came in a 1968 so it's been out there um let's see i'm sorry pausing here uh, marissa myers the lunar Cry- Chron- chronicles garth nix's sabriel series tamora pierce's song of the lioness patrick rothfuss king killer chronicles though i'm taking off because it's not over and we don't know if that book's coming out so it's on there but there it is um brandon sanderson's mistborn brian k vaughn and fiona staples saga and then scott westerfeld's uglies um i mentioned saga does anything else jump out to you there sharifa for good or for ill something be more popular than you thought or less popular or where would you go or where, where does your interest take you
0: I definitely can see uh, something in A Court of Thorns and Roses. That is a huge series yeah. like in terms of like just the world as well as readership. But one one that I that came to mind as I was listening to this list that I was surprised wasn't at the top and also is being adapted is the Valdemar Universe by Mercedes Lackey. Mm. Which is literally 3,000 years of stories. So, <laughs> but yeah, all of those, there were some of the, some, some of these books I are completely off my radar just because um, I don't generally read the most popular books. I'm mm-hmm. over here in my nerd hole reading a lot of like niche reads and things like that, but um those all sounded familiar in terms of, like, even as somebody who is not dialed into the more popular fantasy and science fiction works, I'm like, oh, yeah, I hear a lot of people talking about these books. So in yeah. terms of scope, I don't necessarily know how, how big all of them I are. I don't
1: think any of them, none of them are even, if the Dune Foundation, I, I'd say Dune and Foundation are B-level properties, Right. Lord of the Rings is an A-level property. Star Wars, A-level. Marvel, A-level. I think Dune and Foundation at this point are B-level properties. Could they be A-levels? Maybe. Harry Potter is an A-level series. I'm trying to think of what else is an A-level property out there. That might be kind of it, frankly. There aren't that many. I think we move from Dune Foundation at B. And again, this isn't about grades. This is just about Mm -hmm. scales of awareness or popularity or mindshare. I think we're dropping way down. I don't know what yeah. letter, but this is not C and D here. I don't see any C and Ds here. I'm, I think we're, I don't know. I, I, I've lost track of what is, is, is useful. I, I was going to say F, but that sounds like a flunking grade. So like, I think we're H, yeah. I. Like we're middle of the alphabet. We're not at the bottom, but none of these have much of a, much juice, I think, beyond like you, you and I do books for a living and we're lukewarm on most of these. I think that's telling, Sharifa, frankly. I
0: think so, too. I do think it's it's rare for something that big, like the A-level world, um, to come along. It's, yeah. it's not it's an rare. easy thing to create, and I guess that's not surprising to anybody. No,
1: and they get sold for billions of dollars if they ever do it, and
0: yeah.
1: that's been done. I think it's interesting to think about... You mentioned The Walking Dead, which is an interesting category, because that's a property that certainly moved up several notches because of the adaptation and the popularity of that show. Like that mm-hmm. was a popular comic, but it didn't rely on the popularity of the comic to have some juice. And it's elevated that property. And I don't know whether on season 28 at this point, I don't even know.
0: I have lost um, count. <laughs>
1: They've lost, they lost count. But that certainly is. So you can move up a level or two. Um, you know, I would say that was probably a, an F or G level property. That's now a D level property. Is it? I don't think it's Dune or Foundation.
0: No, But
1: no. it's, you know, it's certainly in the top quartile of series that are out there. I'm trying to think of another one that's really elevated the, the source material into a different category. I'm not really coming up with a good one right now.
0: Yeah. Um, it's hard
1: I'm to sure think I'm sure they're about. out there. There must be podcast at bookrad.com. I'm sure there's something that um, I'm forgetting. You know, the Why the Last Man that's coming out, Are there some other comic ones. Watchmen is an interesting case where it certainly had a pop culture moment, mainstream culture moment over the last year, but Watchmen was already like the hipster, like literary pick. Like it's hard to think that it did much more in terms of its status, and it wasn't a direct adaptation, other things like that. But it's possible to move up. In terms of things that could move up, I think Shadow and Bone was pretty well received. If it can, if we have another good series, that might be. It might get some escape velocity, to become its own pop culture property. Yeah, because um, the
0: Grisha verse is a big world. It's a big one, and there yeah, are lots of different characters world. to explore and places and timelines. Yeah. So
1: yeah, and Foundation, like you, um, with the, the series you mentioned, Foundation happens over millennia. Not not, yes. not merely decades, not merely centuries, but it is in the Lord of the Rings foundation like you've got multiple millennia you can deal with here which is funny to think about as something that's actually useful where you see star wars that's starting to feel claustrophobic a little bit um especially Mm. as we got towards the end of the the sky it was trying to find some escape velocity from the skywalker saga the mandalorians had some success we'll see how endurable or extensible it is beyond just people like baby yoda and someone that looks like boba fett um (laughs) It'd be interesting to see if there's things that other come out there. I think the Dragon Riders of Pern is fascinating. As much, as much joy as there is in Mudville in science fiction, or excuse me, especially fantasy for dragons, we don't have a great dragon series. I mean, Game of Thrones used dragons sort of sparingly, yeah. but like dragons as main characters haven't figured that one out yet. I feel like there's, there might be some juice into something like that.
0: Yeah, and judging from how they don't seem to be afraid of spending scads of cash <laughs> right. on these that's things, right. that could that's that could right. be likely.
1: <laughs> there were, I mean there were some very bad um live action plus CGI. There was Dragonheart where like Sean Connery voiced a dragon Right, that I saw that.
0: <laughs> I saw that. Wow. I think that's one
1: maybe like Dune that our CGI abilities and stomach for the budget required could make it where that's feasible to make something that looks good and that can become, you know, something else in the future. Um, yeah, those are interesting. I, you know, I think basically saga is maybe the exception that proves the rule of it's really going to be something that has to be good on its own terms and find an audience on its own terms. As it gets adapted, you're not getting a lot of base coming into week one or the first series on Netflix from most of these things. You're just not. There's just not much out there um, to see what comes from it. Okay, thank you for that. Let's do another sponsor break and uh, come back and talk about uh, some other news. Speaking of adaptation, so I provided Sharifa our agenda, and I said, okay, what are these things are you most interested in, and what did you pick? What what was your number one draft choice and um, Jeff's potpourri of, of agenda items here?
0: I chose this Atlantic piece that i thought was really fascinating it's the rise of must read tv this was reported mm. on by alexander manchell laura b mcgrath and jd porter i thought this was fascinating because it's like the intersection i probably love film and television as much as books which right. is a daring thing perhaps to say on a book po- podcast Yeah, it's but... fine
1: you're you're all yeah. friends here. <laughs>
0: So I thought this was really interesting because, you know, anecdotally, I am constantly hearing about adaptations. I mean, that's what we've been just talking about. And so there's this data that was drawn from Publishers Marketplace about the rise in television-specific adaptations of books. And so the site listed like 4,000 film and television deals and the TV deals have increased dramatically. Both of them have, uh, but TV adaptations have just been reported to exceed film adaptations for the first time ever, which got like my wheels spinning about all of the reasons that might be. Um, Streaming has just become such a booming industry. I definitely watch a lot more streaming TV and TV adaptations than I do film adaptations. They're just a lot more front of mind. Um, So this article did a deep dive into this new data and really went into analyzing a lot of the things we were just talking about, like how, you know, the adaptation can elevate the popularity of a work like they mentioned bridgerton that became a huge hit and those books uh rose in popularity because of that adaptation and a lot of things like it's easy to tell why that is it it gets widespread to a bigger audience of of viewers and so it also talks about or asks the question of like well does this mean that you know, is this a bad thing? Is it a bad thing that maybe now that adaptations are happening and there are all of these people who are basically being hired to scout out mm-hmm. books that are perfect for TV adaptations? Is it? Are we now coming into this territory where agents are asking for books that are perfect for television adaptation? Writers are writing for yeah. TV adaptations because these deals are happening now. Like, as the book deal is being inked, so too are uh, these TV rights and adaptation rights being inked. So it's just a really, it's a huge and interesting piece that just made me think about how adaptations are happening in a different way and how Mm -hmm. books are being written and what makes a perfect TV-specific adaptation. I just thought this was really fascinating.
1: It's definitely worth reading. If you like this show, if you listen, if you are listening to this show, which you are, otherwise you wouldn't be hearing me say that, those words, go read this. It's in The Atlantic. It's really great. Sharifa mentioned the people, and there's a link in the show notes, bookriot.com slash listen. And I don't want to go through it beat by beat, but there's so much here mm-hmm. that I want to sort of pick out a couple of things. And, and the one, start with the top, which is, I think the thing that you mentioned got your wheel spinning the most was just the aggregate numbers of total literary adaptations, film versus TV. What's interesting now, 2020 pandemic adaptations are hard, but relatively speaking in 2020, there were about 80 TV adaptations and about, I'm eyeballing this, about 60 film adaptations. So even in a pandemic year, there were 80 TV adaptation. Now, comparing that to 20 years ago when the survey starts in 20, it looks like 2000. So that's within our 20 years. My adult life of being in the culture, the number in 2000 was six. So yeah. we've gone from six to yeah. 80 in 20 years. And actually, the peak for TV was 2018, in which there were 120 adaptations. I think this is a pandemic thing that we can see. Yeah. A drop. That happens there but films fall is even more precipitous that the most recent peak was 2018 so in 2018 when tv was peaking or the last peak i guess is one way of thinking about it it was 120 adaptations and there were about 130 ish it looks like 135 ish films. so very close but the peak of film adaptations was in 2008 with 210 film adaptations in one year so we've come all the way down from 210 to 60 with the asterisk by 2020 but even if you go back to 2018 it's fallen by 50-ish percent that's streaming i think you, you hit the nail on the head that's a streaming thing there's more tv shows and they're coming down i'd also like to know what the base rate is like how many films were made were there just more films made in 2008 that could be true you know and what do we call a film like does a 90-minute does a feature that show up on Netflix, are they calling that a film? Because that didn't exist in 2008, a Netflix original film. Those were all Netflix. Did we even have streaming on Netflix in 2008? I don't think we did. I don't think so. I can't remember when that really came. You can see between the, there was sort of a, a pretty steady between 2002, 2008, a pretty steady of 20 to 30 adaptations a year for TV. 2009, we get a leg up. And it really just goes, it looks start to look like the Himalayas yeah. from there, which is fascinating. I think when you were a younger person, like when you were a kid, so we're not too, I'm older than you are, but that's not like a whole generation. But no. when we were kids, it was really rare to see a book made into a TV show. It just didn't happen in the 90s. Can you think of one? That was made into an ongoing TV show. There might be like a Lifetime movie or something.
0: A lot like of the into- ones I remember were mostly miniseries. Yeah. So it wasn't like... No, it wasn't an ongoing TV series. I truly cannot remember a single one. I'm like racking my 90s brain for anything
1: <sighs> Maybe like, bookride.com hit us up. I'm the same. I was kind of setting you up to fail because I had the <laughs> same problem. I can't think of anything. Maybe
0: like Sweet Valley High was a thing that was Maybe. adapted. for, But I don't think that series lasted long, to be fair, yeah. on TV. Uh, but that was one. That's the only one I can think of.
1: Now, there was prestige. So, like, I think the thing you're hearing us talk around, which is a little uncomfortable to say, is that it was thought of, if you couldn't get your film made into a movie a limited series that was going to run on CBS or Lifetime was like way down the prestige ladder, and I think probably in terms of the pay as well, right? Yeah. It, just, it was a completely different world to have your your book made into a movie um, than it was to have, say, I don't know, I'm going to pick one at random, The Hours by Muckle Cunningham, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Prestigious
1: literary fiction, I think won the Pulitzer Prize, I can't remember, there's stickers on it whatever it was, there was a sticker, a That was a crossover literary fiction hit that got made into a pretty mediocre movie starring Ed Harris and um, uh, Nicole Kidman and her uh, nasal prosthetic, which is really the star of that movie. You, if they didn't get made to a movie, they were not making that into a, a TV movie. It was not happening. It just did not, the English patient, if it wasn't made into a movie, they were not making it into a TV show. So it wasn't even like a fallback position, like those were the two options. In the 70s, there was like North and South, the Thorn Birds. There was a, a period in which the uh, Roots, uh, maybe the best yeah. example of a big-time movie being made into a big-time television adaptation. But for whatever reason, I don't know the history of TV well enough to, to know why in the, in the mid early to mid-90s when I was doing most of my TV watching, that strata completely disappeared. Maybe a rise of prestige TV on The Sopranos, The Wire six feet under interesting like that era was the golden age for original properties to become T to become prestige TV shows. Now you almost need a book or something else to base on very rare. You see an original script giving, um, given the whole, that kind of room to run, uh, yeah. or at least much more common. So I think that's definitely the case is just, a, there's, they're willing to pay up for mid list prestige, literary fiction in a way that they just weren't to on TV and TV is something else too. This, art, this article sort of claims that people now write, I think, I can't pick out a, a sentence, but tell me if your gut reading of this is, or your, your reading of this was similar to mine. It's sort of making the argument that since there's so many more adaptations that it's affecting what people write. Like more people are writing to mm-hmm. be adapted than they were back in the day. I don't think I buy that. And I'll tell you why. I think people wanted to be adapted into a movie, and they were, they were thinking about whether or not something could be a movie and, you know, casting in their head and other things like that, I just think more people are successful now <laughs> in having the thing they wrote and getting, getting made to a TV show. What's, what's your take on my counter-thesis is that, actually, I'm not sure that... I think writers for a long time have thought about their stuff being made into a movie eventually, and that's not anything new necessarily, though I don't have any data around that. Does that resonate with you at all?
0: Yeah, it does. I It's interesting because I think that there is in my mind, before I even read this, this article, I was just like, well, there's such a big thirst for stories, mm, right to turn into TV series, um, especially on streaming, that I just thought it it made sense that of course, like there are all these there are stories to be had right at people's fingertips, because there are books uh, to pull from. So yeah, I, I agree that uh, writers have probably thought about having their books adapted for film. Uh, Definitely more so than TV. I don't know if people are as dialed into the fact that, you know, TV is seeing this big boom versus film and people have a very like, when people think, is this a cinematic story I'm telling? It's probably what they're talking about is, is it cinematic for film? Like that's just what it is. Um, And they do kind of go into that, in this article um, and they talk about what makes it, uh, like what types of stories are particularly appealing, but then they also like ask, is contemporary literature being dumbed down by authors, agents, and publishers motivated by profit and struck with this severe bout of adaptation envy? Um, And I thought that that was the interesting question there. Right. And they say no. The answer is no. Uh, yeah, there's <laughs>
1: like they, they say no, but then they make. So I'm going to just read a little. You, you covered a bit of this. They say episodic plots, ensemble casts, and high production value settings. These are the features that, although not at all new to the novel, they cite Middlemarch. I'm just thinking Dickens. You know, yeah, that, that's where my brain went. Um, they've always existed, but and I'm skipping down as the figures and examples above illustrate the rise of streaming and its love of literature have not only influenced which books are read, taught, and studied by scholars they have also started to mediate the form fiction takes, which does suggest that it is shaping, started to shape the form fiction takes. So, but if it's always been this way, then how can it be forming? There's something I'm missing.
0: Yeah, I think that that's a, I, I don't think it's necessarily, if it is shaping things i don't think it's like in any significant way like maybe there's somebody out there who's like well everything i write is going to be a tv adaptation hit like that's what Mm -hmm. i'm going for here but i don't i don't think so if that is the question like personally coming from a very academic and scientific place I, I i don't think i don't think that's true but it is very vague in how yeah like it is very a little bit wishy-washy in how they go back and forth there
1: um, it did make me think the, the mention of faulkner reminded me of something i've been meaning to bring up on the show for a while faulkner you know famously worked in hollywood as a screenwriter. And that was something that a lot of people have done, right? They they write, you know, um, Fitzgerald did this famously and a bunch of other people have as well. One thing that is relatively no, since there are so many more TV series, and TV series need a lot more screenwriting, right? Because you have more mm-hmm. hours to fill. That means you have more pages to fill. That means there's probably more people writing for screen than have ever written before by an order of magnitude. You need a lot more bodies here. And one thing I have noticed is and again, I'm more plugged into the world of books and reading than I was when I was much younger, but novelists who have a book come out and then they get hired into a writing room or they get a series. So we've seen this happen with um, Angela Flournoy, for example, who wrote The Turner House. I interviewed on Reading Lives, part of Book Riot Live back in the day. Shout out to all those people that remember that show or that event. <laughs> Hasn't had another book come out, and she's probably working on one, but I know she's also working on a TV show. Yeah. Um, Matt Johnson who is a writer in residence, I think, at University of Oregon or maybe the, the adjunct here in Portland. Pym, um, great comedic novelist, hasn't had a novel out in a while, but I know is working in a writer's room somewhere. I'm not exactly the sure. Attica Locke wrote Bluebird, Bluebird, and I can't remember the sequel to that. Also is working on a TV show. And so that's one pull I'd be interested to see. Are there more people who have a novel or two that then get a TV show than there used to be? Has to be. But how much is that pulling where the storytelling is happening rather than the adaptation that you're just pulling the storytellers directly to the screen. Like they're using the novel, their book to sort of prove their bona fides as a storyteller. Mm-hmm. And then they get scouted, headhunted to come into a writer's room or to be executive producer or something else. I think that is probably way newer than anything about the form of story here to, to see, or at least that'd be my suspicion yeah. um, at this point. That's an interesting
0: uh, one because I, I don't... Um I I don't have a lot of examples. I know of some authors who are currently, like, working on their adaptations in the writer's room, but it would be interesting to see, like, where do they go from there? Are they going to stick around? I don't know.
1: Yeah, like, how much of, like, say, Nettie Akorafor's brain space is taken up about trying to adapt the stuff that she's written, right? I mean, I think that's another thing that's interesting is a lot of the creators who are having something adapted, and I don't know if it's because the the showrunners, the powers that be, the suits want them in the writing process or they have more juice and N.K. Jemisin or someone else is saying, no, no, I'm not going to just sell you the option. I want to have creative control or say, I want to be in the room where it happens about what words are actually going to show up on the screen. Mm-hmm. But it's curious, like how many, how many novelists are spending how much more of their time working on adaptations directly, either of theirs or, or of just working on original work for the screen? Because it feels like a lot of the juice is getting sucked up that way it feels like there's a lot of people that are dividing their time that way
0: i would say so because there was a time when i remember like i would i would tell people well you know a lot of the time when you see these adaptations the writers of the original books like they really had nothing to do with it they had no say in the creative choice much less like what actually is said on the screen and how the the actual you know the screenwriting aspect of it so
1: Mm -hmm. yeah
0: very new
1: yeah, that that's super interesting. Another just last note of this particular article is they, I thought this was really smart, um, where they looked at how often a book that has been adapted versus a similar one that hasn't been adapted is cited in academic circles, right? Yeah. And they said something that's been adapted is has about twice as many academic citations as something that, that isn't, which on the face of it, I'd be like, kind of like, duh, right? Because it's more yeah. popular. But you would think academics would be if anyone's going to be more insulated from the cultural weight of something having a more mainstream life, it would be academics. And it doesn't, it it doubles. It's just way different now. Again, there's a lot of things that aren't adapted. And probably to a first approximation, you could, as a rounding error, 0% of things are adapted in terms of things that actually get written. Um, But it really does matter. So it has its own weight. But I don't know. I mean, are then things that are adapted Are things adapted because they're more likely to be written about and talked about as well? I mean, it's an interesting chicken and the egg situation. But if you feel like there's a lot more literary adaptations, you're right. Um, Congratulations to us for noticing that. (laughs) It is interesting, too, in the history of this show, it used to be that if there was an adaptation of, like, you know, significant but not earth-shattering import, we would spend six minutes talking about Celeste Ng's book getting picked up for an adaptation we couldn't do that now because every show would have 40 items of things getting adapted. So yeah. the, the 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 specialness of adaptation has also gone away. I just hope writers are getting paid and it helps them make the stories they want to. Uh, that's my story here. That's all. That's what I want for everyone is uh, the writers and creators to get paid and make the kind of stuff um, they want to make. Uh, let's see. Where do we? I guess speaking of this, uh, the worlds of adaptations, creators, curators, and big dollars. Hello, sunshine which is Reese Witherspoon's, well, I should say was Reese Witherspoon's, um, Mm -hmm. I don't even know what you call it, production company, uh, they do all kinds of stuff, um, from producing, adapting, to running book clubs, you know, they're dipping their toes into e-commerce, sold to a private equity group, who basically seems to me is trying to build... They wanna be a arms manufacturer for the streaming wars, for the adaptation for the media wars. And so they're they're rolling up Hello Sunshine. It sounds like they've got more money to go buy other things like Hello Sunshine where they're acquiring mm-hmm. talent, they're acquiring taste making, they're acquiring a sensibility and know how to go out and find certain kinds of books, package them up, get development deals and sell them to Apple or sell them to, to someplace else. And, I'm not really sure how much you followed what Hello Sunshine does, but it seems to me that Reese Witherspoon and her team, she's the public face of it. I don't know the other people here. There's a bunch of people mentioned here. Mm -hmm. What is the value? Because they don't own IP necessarily. Um, They have a pipeline. Um, They have people that have connections. But everything that Reese say picks for her book club that she could adapt would seem to be available to anyone else to go scout and adapt i think maybe the value here is that you're good at it you have a good sensibility you have some brand recognition even within the industry so someone will sell to you Someone will take your call do all those other things are are worth a lot of money but 900 million dollars for hello sunshine that's a lot it's it's i mean again this is dumb because this is how math works but that's almost a billion dollars. Now you're talking about, re- you could have had Lord of the Rings rights for that. I mean, seriously, yeah. what do you think is more valuable? The Lord of the Rings rights or Hello Sunshine? They're saying they're equivalent, which is mind blowing to me. Uh, Sharifa, do you have a take on this or are we just going to like get that bag Reese and get out of here on this particular story? <laughs> any other thoughts about it?
0: My, my my big thought on it is that I do feel like it is, they are paying for that brand recognition. like. Reese Witherspoon's book club is like a big deal with a lot of people Um, Mm -hmm. and the shows that have the productions that have come out of Hello Sunshine have been some big hits with a lot of buzz like you know big little lies and little fires everywhere are noted here as well as the morning show which may be a little bit less but you know those are those are big successful enterprises that have come out of hello sunshine but i think it is definitely like basically paying for witherspoon and you know that recognition hello sunshine is a big name but i was also just blown away by the amount it was staggering to me and it always uh it perhaps always is uh these money exchanges are are always um attached to big amounts of money that I cannot even begin to understand. So yeah, I would say, I, yeah, grab your bag, I guess. Gra- and-
1: grab, the, grab the bag and, and get out or, or, you know, make sure it vests or whatever you've got to do to get that. I was trying to explain to someone what Hello Sunshine was, and I don't know the business that well. Rebecca and I have followed the book club, Reese's production company, from, sort of orthogonal to what we're related to. The best comparison I could think of is like, thinking of Paltrow's goop, but for, like, TVs and books and movies. Yeah. Like, it's curatorial, it's a mindset, it's an attitude. And I don't mean to dismiss... I'm not trying to to downplay either Hello... Son- Goop is a giant e-commerce juggernaut. Like, that you're listening to this and you know what I'm talking about is defines that. But what its product is is, is a lot less substantial than I think we would assume a hundred million... or uh, almost a billion dollars worth of enterprise is. I mean... Lucas sold Star Wars for $7 billion to, to to Disney. So you're saying Hello Sunshine is worth one-seventh of Star Wars? Maybe Star Wars is underpriced. Um, that's certainly possible, especially at this point, with knowing how valuable these properties are. But I think what we're finding, if this number is even close to being a fair market value, is now that there's so many outlets, and now that there's so many properties, and now that there's so many different platforms... The thing, a differentiating factor might be taste. What gets put on those, what you decide to make yeah. is more, as, as it's as important as what rights you own um, or how many subscribers you have your platform. Um, pretty interesting here. Um,
0: yeah. We're going to
1: do some juicy gossip stuff in a minute. Anything else on that, Sharifa?
0: No, that's it. It feels like very like the mega version of influencers, but I, <laughs> yes. I've got
1: nothing more. <laughs> yes, it does feel that way. Like influencers within the industry, industry yeah. influencers, something like that. That's a great point. Yeah. All right. Sponsor break. And then um, we don't do Gossip Corner that often, but this is a weird one that we have to talk about. Or I have to talk about this from a can stay mom and above the fray if she wants to. <laughs> we'll come back and talk about it. I don't think this matters in any way that's going to affect the world of books and reading. It's just a strange story that reminds me how strange, I guess not, not unlike the Hello sunshine world about the kind of dollars we're talking about, even for scholastic, which people don't, I don't think about it on par with random house and HarperCollins and some of these big ones that are owned by scholastic is largely privately held, which I had forgotten, but there's major stakeholders and it's one dude and the dude died. I'm just going to abstract this here. Dick Robinson, Richard Robinson. And he left his controlling stake in Scholastic to an old flame, essentially. Someone yeah. who'd been working at Scholastic, who he had a relationship with. And not too surprising that his ex-wife, this is how these things happen when people get divorced. You don't usually leave things to your your old partner. But then his kids didn't get any of it. And went all to his old flame who does have business acumen she was running this but it really was a as, as much as there's insider gossip gossip on the bookish internet this had a day sharifa jen dropped it in said is there something here it's like for most book people there isn't but i'm like fascinated by this it's like succession on hbo kind of level of plot twist of like wait a minute you left it to her Not to me, dad, but you're dead, and now we're going to fight it out in court. But a wild story, um, and people have too much money. I guess that's that's my other takeaway, Sharifa, Was there anything else in this story that you thought was worth noting, or should we just mention that this is a wild one?
0: I just got the vibes of, like, you know, every—there's that scene in so many movies of a certain type where— Everybody in the family is just in that one very serious looking room listening to yes. the reading of the will. And then this big scandal is unveiled. And like, you know, that one person is the same sort of thing. That old flame or whatever got everything. And I was just like, I can't believe this is actually happening in the publishing world. It's its kind of like wild <laughs> but it really
1: is that's why I say it feels more like something out of a TV show than
0: Yeah, yeah, you're totally right. I got that exact feeling from this story and ooh, that's going to be a tough one for that family to unravel.
1: Here's a question for all you probate lawyers out there if we have anyone listening. Is this scene of the family gathered in leather chairs in a den somewhere And someone opens up a lawyer opens up the envelope to read. Is that something that actually happens, or is that just something that TV and movies told us as a scene? Is that is that a real thing, or like how does this work now? I'd assume you just get an email at this point, but like this idea of like we're getting the family, but like it happens in Knives Out, like it happens in like every other Agatha Christie novel. I feel like there's one of these scenes. Like where did this come from, of this primordial scene of the reading of the will? And did it ever exist? Is this the real thing out in the universe? Book, I want uh, it to be true. Yeah. Do you want this to be true? I guess I live in fear of that moment. If I ever have to go to a will reading in which I'm summoned into a, a country manor house, um, and there's <laughs> sort of this Fustian old lawyer reading, I just assume some stuff is about to go down. Like, I'm, who's about to get murdered? Who was murdered? Mm-hmm. Uh, who, who, who is not the, the daughter they thought they were? Who's not biologically related? Um, I'm just going to be very nervous. Be be aware going into a will reading. Um, (laughs) wear, wear, Wear a body armor. Get a DNA test. Have your friends and family DNA tested ahead of time. Don't be surprised. Protect yourself and your loved ones going into the will reading.
0: Hercule Poirot is gonna kool-aid man into the room and, <laughs> yeah, and right. maybe save that's the right. day I don't know uh,
1: that's right um I think we're gonna end on a maybe we'll just mention it because it's another long read that Rebecca and I have talked about on the show from time to time and I think we had a I think we had a piece on the site recently recent ish about goodreads is problems um and I don't think it's anything. Goodreads doesn't necessarily do anything proactively to make it problems, but when you have an openish platform in which people can influence the public perception of someone just by, by brute force, just by trying, you have a whole bunch of weird stuff that can happen. So this piece is titled, How Extortion Scams and Review Bombing Trolls Turn Goodreads into Many Authors' Worst Nightmare. If that doesn't get you interested as a world yeah. of books and reading story person, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> Starts out with a terrifying anecdote. This is by Megan McCluskey, writing in Time. Basically, people finding an angle that I can threaten authors with terrible reviews, one star review bombing, and they have to pay me not to do it, which is like classic extortion, right? Yeah. This was eye opening. I don't know a way around this necessarily. Um, I mean, th- this is how someone described it. Went on the record, by the way. Um, Aaron Stein, an editor and publisher uh, at Macmillan Children's, called Goodreads a necessary evil. Sharifa, Ouch. if anyone describes Book as a necessary evil, I hope I'm we're gonna getting paid a lot more bags. money because that's a lot of influence. But that's not what you want if you've started a company no. in books and reading, right? You don't want to be called a necessary evil, I don't think.
0: No, I would pack my bags and go off the grid and be like, oh my. I do hope this is... It is definitely well worth reading this whole thing because it is like talk about scandalizing and some of this I knew going in just from like you know sometimes people will post things uh, authors are tweeting about about Goodreads and their experiences and you hear, hear about other situations where it's like some author said something terrible and people go and review bomb um there are so many Mm. things about goodreads reviews there's so much to unpack there about like all of the ways those reviews get used that are not necessarily straightforward reviews the extortion is one piece of it that is like a truly awful and um significant piece of it and i do hope that With this article coming out, Goodreads will take a real close look at their processes. And toward the end of the article, they talk about how kind of loosey-goosey the process of actually making Mm -hmm. an account is, which is kind of... There's a big problem here, um, and I don't think it's going to take like a Band-Aid or going on a case-by-case basis to fix this issue... Um, especially with things like between the extortion and the one star reviews for marginalized authors who speak out on the internet about things, ways they've been wronged. Like between all of the things that are listed here and probably more, there's Mm -hmm. a really good reason for Goodreads to take a close look. But they're a huge company and this is one of those situations where like, I feel frustrated on behalf of these people who are yes. feeling very unheard by Goodreads because, you know, they can just go about their merry way and you, the repercussions for them aren't that big. But this is a big article and I hope it brings attention to the problem.
1: I hope it does, too. I mean, time writing about this and yeah. is time isn't it what it once was in its glory days. Of course, we all know that. But it's different than something appearing on our side or Bustle or, you know, LidHub or something like that. It just has a different valence. And I wonder what happens. Rin Chubico, who you shout out earlier, gets another shout-out. Well, we'll give another shout-out, who's quoted at length here. This is was an interesting idea that's become unmanageable, is what she says. And she has her own experience with getting review-bombed. Not about her book, but about something else she says. So someone uses this as an attack surface to punish, silence, you know, otherwise coerce and that's putting it maybe a little gently, um, basically hurt someone for doing something they didn't like. And as you say, you're right, it's a structural problem because to, to stop the kinds of things that people are saying are happening, and I, and I believe them, of course, Goodreads would have to fundamentally reimagine what it means for someone to leave, re- leave a review on the on someone's page, right? They yeah. would have to fundamentally do something different. I don't know. Verified accounts, invest a lot more in moderation, have stricter guidelines about also appropriate vectors of critique or review. And I'm not saying that's not a, well, it is a mess. It's a complete mess. And I understand why they're not doing it. I think they're wrong. I think if you're going to do this and want, and you are interested in being something other than a necessary evil, you have to re, you have to allocate resources you've never done before you have to scrub the graffiti off you've got to clean up the bathroom that's what's happening here is you have a public toilet and this is a great idea we need toilets there's something that needs to be done here this serves a function but if you don't do something it's going to be ruined in a tragedy of the commons kind of way and people are going to find ways to exploit it and that's what's happened and it's not unlike a lot of social it frankly goodreads is social media it's not, it is, it just is. And it, it has all the structural pieces of social media for good and for ill. And I think we're finding the ill is you can't separate the ill from the good without a lot of effort and a lot of work. And it's going to cost you money and it's going to lower your share price. And it's going to be a lot harder. And you're going to make a whole bunch of people mad because you're changing something they were used to. Yeah. It's either do that or be, be okay with being a necessary evil. Those are your choices right now.
0: Those are some hard choices.
1: They, they ain't easy. But you know what? It's Amazon. I think their market cap now is $1.5 trillion.
0: <laughs> right.
1: If they wanted to, they could figure out. They could make efforts here. I mean, Rin Chubico says she had all this happen. She tried to email. She got no response from Goodreads. This is a published author from a major public house with multiple series. Couldn't get a response. Couldn't get a response. Unbelievable.
0: Yeah. I should note also that they uh, they go by they, them.
1: Just oh a, yes, thank you, you very side. much for that. Yeah. Not thank you so much for that. Yeah, no problem. Um,
0: uh yeah, that this is a it's been an ongoing issue and I agree, like in my mind, I am definitely of the opinion that they need to fix this and they have the resources and like you know, I go to the place of like do they even care? Like is this a thing? Like the fact that they you don't even need to verify your email address to create an account that just tells me so much. Like why? Yeah. I feel like yeah. everywhere else on the internet at least you have to verify your email address. That's just a simple thing. So
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's one thing to say, "Boy, our house keeps getting robbed," but if you are are you locking your doors? And you're like, "Well, no, I don't have a lock on my door." I feel like email verification is like at least a lock on your door or yeah. at least keep or even shutting your door. Maybe it's not even a lock, but like we do email verification for stuff that we do and we're not good reads, you know, uh, entering all kinds of stuff. Anyway, long story short, <laughs> that's, that's, that's a good pick out Sharifa of boy, that's not even really cause I could, I could believe that they care, but the mountain to climb is so high that they don't care that much. But not yeah. having email verification to set up a a, a profile is pretty damning. Um, pretty may, I wonder, may, maybe if they did put out some base level preventative measures, is this one of those things where a dollar's worth of preventative medicine would yield a $1,000 in returns, just to provide any more friction for people that want to behave badly? Um, I wonder about that. Yep. All right. That's our show. Sharifa, thank you so much for being here. As always, you can find uh, show notes, bookriot.com slash listen. Shoot us an email, podcast at bookriot.com. I especially want to know about whether or not the primordial scene of the reading of the will has any basis in (laughs) ongoing fact. Same. Um, And I'll let Sharifa know. You can find Sharifa over there on yeah with Jen. Um, You guys are podcasting every other week right you guys are together and then you have yeah ones in between where you do recommendations and a thing like that what have you guys talked about recently what have been some recent topics i'm I'm a little behind so what's what's up to dating kansas city with you guys
0: well last time we went totally wild card and we were just like we're just recommending some books we really like uh and then i actually had vanessa as a guest on vanessa's the managing editor now on the last one and we basically gave everybody a summer reading list, which is like one of my favorite things in the world to do. So those are the most recent ones. And we talk about all the things all the time, including adaptations and pop culture. So, so find us.
1: Excellent. Sharifa, we'll talk to you next time.